Okay, guys, welcome. The 831 Podcast returns. Episode 28, I believe. Um, yeah, we've been busy. I've got this one in. I've hopefully got a few more books in for this week, so I should be firing them out for you guys. Um, hope you're all doing well, getting on fine. The weather's been fantastic over the weekend. We've all been sensible, staying in. There's lots of these amazing podcasts and stuff to listen to. Not not from myself, obviously. It's a bit um, a bit egotistical saying this one's amazing. But yeah, there's lots of amazing things to be listening to. Lots of good things to be watching, reading, etc. Just spending the time. Do some things that you've always wanted to do that you, that you haven't been able to do. I've been concentrating a lot on writing, which has been fantastic. So... Yeah, I hope we're all keeping busy, hope we're all safe, hope we've all had a great Easter anyway. Um, as always, sponsorship-wise, this is sponsored by Trojan Fitness, Trojan Nutrition. They will forever be long-term sponsors of the podcast. Um, look them up for all your nutritional needs, training, etc. in Bristol. Um, the Cloud Seller Limited, they're a sponsor of this always. Plus, big shout-outs to the places I train, A3 Academy, I teach and train. Sweatbox Gym Bristol, I teach and train there. Also Pedro Bassa BJJ for all my BJJ. Um, yeah, other than that, big shout out to everyone who's who's helping out with the current COVID situation. Um, I know I say to question everything and do research and all these things, but we shouldn't um, undermine the fact that there is a pandemic going on. Lots of people are working their asses off. So yeah, a big shout out to those guys. You're not underappreciated it by any stretch of imagination, certainly by myself and anyone who listens to this, I'm sure. Um, as for today's uh, today's podcast, I'm joined by good friend, long-term friend, Falconer, um, now works at the Wildwood Project, was manager of London Zoo for a long time. Anyone who's interested in biology, animals, zoos, zoological, this is a great podcast. Mark's very knowledgeable. He's dedicated his whole life to animals, zoology, biology, um, naturalist, he's a falconer, and he's a great podcast. I want to sit down and have a chat with him for a while. He's a funny guy, he's a good guy, he's really interesting. So yeah, we managed to sit down and, and get this one out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, I'm sure you'll love it. <clears throat> have a listen to what Mark has to say, do some research on some of the projects he's doing. But yeah, generally, I hope you enjoy it, I hope it's fun. As I said, I've got a few of these booked for this week, so we'll be back this week with some more projects. Um, for you all to listen to. In the meantime, no, this is episode 28, Mark Haben. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Uh, we spoke about this, uh, well, back when I first started doing the podcast, we spoke about doing this, and I obviously, um, before this whole corona stuff i like i like to do more face to face and in person but that's no longer an option at the moment and i just thought what's the point in not doing them when people have got so much time on their hands we might as well get together so here we are brilliant no it's it's a great idea and i think it's you know it's it's a nice thing it kills some time for everybody but hopefully people will enjoy listening to us rambling about uh anything so why not Exactly, that's the thing. I do these and people say all the time to me, like, oh, what if no one listens? And it's like I say to people, I, I don't care. Like, I don't, if nobody listens, I really just don't care. It's one of those things I speak to people who I really enjoy speaking to. And from there, 
this, this podcast comes about if people want to listen to it superb and i really appreciate the people who do and the people who give me feedback and if people don't want to listen to it hey hey ho like we've still had a great chat <laughs> excellent good stuff how's um how's stuff with you during this whole thing mate like with work and personally how's it how you managing with everything yeah, pretty good um, to a degree. I think I, I'm, I have to, I'm in a really fortunate position in the um, I still get to go to work. Uh, I appreciate that's not the case for everybody. Um, not full time. I've had to split the team here at Wildwood in two, so straight down the middle um, with animal keepers, staff, and the ranger team just to really respect social distancing and ensuring that if I've got one group of people that have to isolate, it's not going to affect the day to day management of species like bears and wolves and um, everything else that we keep here in the park. So we, we've got to come in, um, manage a, a very large and growing animal collection in the middle of a breeding season as well. So I think in that respect, um, it's, it's business as usual to, to some degree. Well, business as unusual, I think, is is probably the, the, the phrase that's been most recently coined. And I think that's about right. It's very strange. No visitors, minimal staff in. Um, but I've got to say, getting out of the house is I, I'm very fortunate to be able to do that because uh, kids are driving me mad. <laughs> it's uh what you what you've got now is you've gone from working in a zoo environment with wild animals that are enclosed to now working at home oh. with kids that are now becoming wild animals enclosed <laughs> <laughs> and you're enclosed with them yeah so it's, exactly. a, it's an absolute nightmare so um yeah no i'm really lucky and it's uh take that for granted is it's an important thing that we're doing and i think every animal collection big small whatever all around uh, all around the world at the moment they've, they've got to look after those animals and i think we're in a fortunate position still to be able to do that and uh, and yeah. get get some space away from get your own time back yeah definitely yeah. so you so for the the purposes of people listening um what what is your job title and your job role mate Okay, so I'm Head of Living Collections for the Wildwood Trust, which is predominantly a conservation organisation. Got, we've got two large parks in Kent and Devon. Uh, the predominant focus is on Europe, well, native species or species that have existed in the UK since the last ice age. So we've got species like European brown bear, wolves, lynx. Um, we do a lot of work with red squirrels, so we're, we're, um, we've provided uh, animals for the release projects. Same for, with pine martins as well, so in the uh, Forest of Dean with the project, some of the animals we bred here um, then went on to breed again and produce animals for the release programs. Um, and we do uh, hazel dormouse uh, beavers in Kent and Devon, um, we contributed to a lot with that. So it's really looking at species and wilding projects, big rewilding projects. Um, that put animals back into into the British landscape where they can do what they should be doing, and that's that's part of what we're doing at the moment. We do, we wouldn't like to say rescue work as such. We're just doing a big project in the um, Devon Park at the moment. We've got two young bear cubs that were abandoned in Albania. The Albanian Wildlife Rescue did an amazing job, absolutely incredible. These two very young animals, they were found in a snowdrift. It looks like the um, adult female had been um, startled by illegal logging. She's, she's moved on. She's climbed through this snowdrift, 
abandoned two very, very young cubs. Um, they, the Albanian wildlife rescue team had been monitoring them very closely, um, but temperatures were dropping significantly. Mum wasn't coming back, so they've taken them in, given them a lot of care, and they've come into contact with us um, via a Belgian rescue centre to see if we take the animals here. It's something we've done before. We built um, two, well, nearly two-acre forest with ponds and streams and um, done a lot of studies on uh, behavioural studies on torpor and diet for European brown bears. Uh, and we think we're in a very strong position to take on these two cubs. So that's what we're currently working on at the moment. Probably um, these two cubs were once classed as the unluckiest bear cubs in Europe because so many rewilding attempts took place to try and put them back both in Albania, then again in Romania. All of that fell through. And then uh, now I think they're pretty lucky they're going to get an amazing home. So we're working through a lot of project work with that at the moment. So how old are you sort of bear now? Um, they're about eight and a half months at the moment. By the time they come to us, we're just building, building a huge facility um, specifically for them. It would be about two acres of woodland pond streams to mirror what we've got in Kent already. Um, and I think they'll, they'll be around about September time. So we're looking at about 14 months old. Wow. It's, it's amazing that uh, orphan bears from somewhere like Albania then end up yeah. here. And that could be the future of bear population throughout the the UK, if the I mean, so is is that rewilding project confirmed, or is it just something that's just in the, you're trying to put it together so it can go ahead? Well, not so much for, for that specifically with bears. What we what we're doing with these bear cubs is, is providing a, a home for animals that would probably end up most likely in a zoo somewhere in without being disrespectful in third-rate accommodation um, to be gawped at by visitors what we're trying to do is pr provide a natural area of forest to give these animals a life you know to give them the kind of habitat that they would have so a their, their main purpose will be to really give give them a life but also to be able to show how bears live in the wild and, and do the visitor experience element with that so people come and see them the wilding projects that we work on at the moment actually probably the biggest one we've got in the pipeline that we're, we're really excited about not confirmed at the moment i have to say that and i can't go into too many details on it but the one the one we're really looking at and it's all guns blazing for is um bison in into the, yeah as part of the wild kent project in collaboration with kent wildlife trust we've been looking at um, the feasibility studies um, around releasing bison into an area of woodland attached to Wildwood Trust um, land that is owned by the Kent Wildlife Trust. Um, I've been working out myself in the Netherlands with Kent Wildlife Trust and um, some of my team here just to see what it looks like because actually in the UK a lot of the time in many places we've forgotten how to live with wildlife and we've got animals that once existed in the UK that you wouldn't we don't see anymore um, and there's some very ambitious projects and um, there's a lot of people really trying to influence and a lot of organizations trying to influence what we could see back in the UK there's all kinds of discussions that have taken place um, but the bison one is certainly feasible in terms of building a reserve and assessing the current ecology of the landscape now as it sits without a large herbivore so then looking at it five ten years down the line after large grazing herbivores have been put in place now, the exciting thing about this is we keep European bison at Wildwood now and we keep them in a large area that's got lots of native trees, got lots of birch, chestnut, um, oak trees in and around that area. It's also got lots of non-native trees like Western hemlock. 
And what we found, where we've opened up the habitat, the, the entire area for the bison, what they've done is killed off all the non-native trees. But all the native trees have adapted to them rubbing up against them and grazing on them. And they've thrived, they've adapted, they've coppiced and they've grown. And so really what we'd like to do is put this out in a much larger landscape. We're talking um, uh, probably about 150 hectares of mixed forest, of um, including many native trees like your birch and your willows, oak, hornbeam, etc. But there's also a lot of non-native trees, there's Corsican pines in there as well. And we'd really like to try and see over, over a long time scale what impact the bison will have on the ecology of that landscape. What native species are going to come come to the area as a result of the presence of bison? You know, it's really important that when we're doing a study like that, that um, we don't medicate bison out in that area. We want to keep it perfectly natural, so we won't be using wormers or anything on the ground. We want to see if dung beetles are going to exist, whether um, species that are really dependent on bison dung are going to thrive. That's going to bring in um, other species as well. We know that looking at the Netherlands project that's um, been operational now since since the 90s. We know that what they've done is opened up areas of forest. They've they've opened up big areas of grassland, and there's coppices in between it. And we now see as a result of that that yellowhammer have come back. Turtle doves are thriving in those areas. The deer have moved in. The rabbit population, hares, a range of different species that never existed in the habitat beforehand have all really started to come back and flourish in an area because of the, the way that bison have changed the landscape. And that is something we're, we're really pushing at the moment. That's crazy. The, the promotion of a, or the introduction of a new large herbivore species like the bison has promoted so much other herb, herbivore species to exist like to coexist with them because i was thinking that one of the big bonuses of you um introducing bison might be that it uh disperses large areas of deer population which yep. are obviously a massive issue for people yeah. might not understand people might not understand that for an incident. um obviously i have lots of friends who listen who are just who like jiu-jitsu players or mma fighters and they're not into wildlife they'll listen to a podcast like this because they find it interesting but um like they Big deer populations are a massive for young trees and uh, yeah, yeah. etc. So I was thinking that the introduction of bison would possibly disperse large groups of deer, which would help promote the the um, the species that are native uh, yeah. to grow. Yeah, and. I think well, in time we'll probably understand that a little bit more. We'll probably be able to understand how um, deer species will, will move on as a result of bison activity. Not, not entirely sure at the moment. We're, we're doing ecological assessments at the moment to see what exists excuse me, within that current landscape. And then that will be monitored year on year just to see. It's, it's all very aspirational at the moment, but the plan is what we'd like to like to do is then study year on year as the herd uh, as the herd evolves and grows, um, what impact that has had, and that might be on the dispersal of, of deer species. It might mean that species like fallow deer, for example, really can't tolerate the same kind of habitat. Bison are extremely territorial as well, so there is that element too that might in, might mean that actually they don't want the competition for food and space, and they'll disperse disperse deer that way so it's, it's really um a matter of us doing something fairly unique certainly in the uk um and taking on board a lot of those studies
studies that are taking place across the Netherlands and Bielowicza in Poland that have been doing this for a very long time um, with free living bison in huge forested areas. And this is, uh, it'll be a first for, for the UK, but something that's very exciting. So how long would say the bison have been um, a, a feature in the UK or would they never been really here since the European continent broke up? They would have never really existed here? Quite possibly. Um, there's no there's no fossil records in the UK of European bison or, or the whistent as we, we uh, otherwise know it. Um, so there's no fossil records of the species. Um, but there is a very strong likelihood that they would have existed here. We know that the auroch would have done, which was a, a pre-descendant of, uh, of the uh, European bison. Um, but we know that large herbivores have existed across the UK and helped scrub the landscape and across all of Europe. Um, so we feel that it's a great opportunity to try and bring that back. And of course, subsequent to then, we've introduced an awful lot of non-native trees all across, our, all across our countryside for a range of different purposes. A lot of the forest areas here are made up of Corsican pine and western hemlock, which were growing for paper and they were growing for matchstick production during the First and Second World Wars. Now, they become a bit of a monoculture. And what we've seen with bison um, as a, as a natural herbivore it's not just the grazing or the browsing of them perhaps i should say it's the rubbing up against them and stripping the bark off that's felled all of these trees so i think having a large herbivore within the area within this landscape that will help bring the forest back to what it should look like um and then hopefully bring the species back that should be there and you know it's yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be a big study we're, we're going to be doing this in conjunction um with various university studies as well just to make sure that we're fully understanding the impact that we have um as an organization and with with the wildlife trust and the impact that bison will have providing this all goes ahead um but we're planning for it yeah i mean it's one of those things where even if um even if it say you do the research and it turns out it's not feasible just the research in itself was yeah. worth doing to understand what what our options and alternatives are so just that project in its own like i'm excited hearing about it, you know it's, it does sound really exciting and the other one that you mentioned was uh wolves do you have much to do with the wolf reintroduction or do you not 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 personally and i think that um Wolves across, you, you know, is such a controversial subject. And I think that a lot of reintroductions as well, or introductions or rewilding, wilding projects, whatever uh, terminology you prefer to use, I think there's a lot of controversy around a number of them, particularly around um, predatory species. And I say controversy, it's, it's probably um, a large element of fear around them, which often comes as, as a result of um, poor communication, um, lack of engagement with the kind of communities that would perhaps be very fearful of a wolf introduction or even a lynx introduction, you know, particularly farming communities. I think that they need to be engaged very early on if there's any talk of wolf reintroductions um, in, in, in Britain, particularly in, the, in, if, I mean, in England. I find it hard to believe that there is any suitable enough habitat of significant space to really warrants a wolf introduction it, it pains me to say because i'd actually love to see it but but um that's speaking as a naturalist and biologist like many of us um yourself included we love wildlife we love we, 
very much into nature and uh, animals and I'd, I'd love to think that it would be possible to introduce uh, wolves I, I can't see it I, I don't know how how that would be possible I think it would certainly solve a lot of our deer issues that, that uh, you spoke about earlier I think that'd be a good one um, but what we are seeing on a more realistic scale is really achievable projects with small species and we've seen huge success, I say huge success, but ongoing success of the Pine Martin project, the, re the release project in the Forest of Dean. And I, I think that should be absolutely applauded. And that the, the way they've gone about that, and we've been involved in some of the tracking of, of those animals. So some of the team here spent a couple of days in the Forest of Dean um, doing some of the tracking of, of, of the animals on, the, they've all got uh, GPS collars. But what's been really, I think, interesting about that is how um, all of the project involved local gamekeepers and the farming community and, and to some extent the shooting community. Um, people who've got their eyes on the ground that understand the countryside, um, rather than alienating them or making assumptions um, about how people might feel about it, they brought them on board. And you've got gamekeepers phoning up to say, actually, we've seen a pine martin in this area. Um, it could be a problem to what we're doing. Um, it's, you know, and you can understand how that might be the case. But instead of taking their own measures to manage that situation, they're engaged, they're communicating. Those animals can be relocated um, to a more appropriate area where they're not going to cause agricultural damage or damage to um, whatever a gamekeeper is trying to achieve at that point in time. And I think that engagement with all members of the community from an early, uh, from very early on is critically important. It's very important where you're talking about potentially either dangerous animals like bison, or you're talking about predatory species which could have an impact on, on um, what farm, farmers and gamekeepers are trying to achieve as well, because you won't, you won't work successfully if you alienate extremely valuable stakeholders, and they are, there's no question of that. And I think that, you know, we, we're seeing more and more how that has been a valuable lesson. I think it's realistic to be looking at wildcats. I think there's no question that they're looking at wildcat introductions again in Scotland. That will that will broaden out at, at some point. I think that will be the next predatory carnivorous species that will be introduced. Uh, no question. Um, of course, white-tailed seagulls seem to be doing pretty well across uh, the Isle of Wight as well. I think um, so. Uh, carnivorous and predatory species you know there's always going to be some controversy around that it's going to worry people um, but if you get that engagement element right and actually bring that knowledge that these people have into the fold then you can have a really collaborative successful project that everyone's proud of yeah I agree. It's, uh, what, what seems to be the the case is people in your situation um people in my situation who can understand and see both sides of the the coin yeah. from hunting perspective, yeah. from gamekeeping, from agriculture, from there. Of course, there's going to be this contentious crossover where the two meet, and it's going to. There's always going to be those those elements that that make it a bit um contentious, and then you're going to get the people who handle that wrong, the rogue gamekeepers, the idiots, the poachers, the but what you get a lot of the time is these far extremists who want to scream, like, no hunting, no this. And I don't think they really understand or respect what impact that will have on rewilding, on wildlife yeah, yeah. conservation to get rid of the people who spend most of the time out, outdoors and in these environments. If you alienate these people, 
the people who are sat home, the keyboard warriors are the ones complaining and kicking out the fuss. They're not there. They're not putting back into the. They're not putting back into these um, conservation projects. So the fact that yourself and your team will work so closely with them is great promotion for every aspect. No, I mean, of course, there's always going to be ethical issues with is hunting sport. Should you kill stuff for for sport? And you know, like that comes down to ethics and morals and a lot of the time understanding and a lot of people don't understand and I can't, it's not up to me or anyone else to say, no, your morals are wrong because you don't like things being killed. Well, no, that makes me an idiot. Nobody should like things being killed. Like, things dying and killing things is just a side of hunting. But it's not hunting. Killing things is not hunting. That's part of hunting. And people get people who don't understand generally get confused and then to see someone like yourself and obviously i know you very well i know you're pro hunting um and i know you're obviously the efforts that you've made into wildlife and conservation are second to none really so the fact that someone like yourself can say that openly hopefully people will start to listen to that people just don't like being wrong i know people don't like being wrong but <laughs> no they don't you can hear that and they you know they can take that on board and see that there are elements to this where everyone works together for the benefit. Well, I think I think that's it, Wes. And I, I think in any community um, at all, you're you're going to get people that you will fundamentally not agree with with what they're doing. I mean, I, I fly hawks, as as you know, and I, I hunt hawks and um, as a falconer, and you know that that is part of countryside life. Other people do different things. People go shooting. That's I, I don't particularly, but that's that's down to them. As long as people are respecting what they're doing, and the, the majority of Simon was I've said this previously, um, you know, gamekeepers get a very very hard press a lot of the time. Sometimes justifiably, there's no question of that in my mind at all. Um, however, on the side of the coin, you always hear negative press before you hear anything positive, and. It won't surprise me if it's the first time that you've been hearing that gamekeepers have been very supportive of pine martin releases because you don't hear it. You, you, you'll, hear, you'll hear that a bird's been shot or a bird's been found dead. You don't hear the positive side of it because people like to um, tell a negative story before they'll tell a positive one. And I, I think it's very, very important that we engage in countryside projects. Conservation projects are invariably, nine times out of 10, are countryside projects. And to do them well, you need to embrace those people working in and around the countryside that may do things entirely different to yourself. They might they might do things that you wouldn't do or, or you don't necessarily agree with, but you have to respect the knowledge and not alienate it and bring that on board. Because actually there's a lot of people within within a hunting community that are fantastic conservationists as well. And I think you can't the the, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. Lots of uh lots of people don't don't understand that and it's one of my biggest grievances look one of my this is my biggest issue with chris packham is chris packham was so vehemently um berate and post the people who are doing stuff wrong the gamekeepers who are caught shooting stuff and the poisoning of hen harriers blah 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 but he's very very reluctant to promote the gamekeepers who are helping uh, the side of pheasant shooting that contributes back all of these things it, he's he very rarely will you see him promote that side of things but he will vehemently um stamp on the people who are doing stuff wrong which those people do deserve that but at the same time let's represent both sides of the coin you, you're you're 
Chris Packham is in a, a situation I don't think he respects how lucky he is in that he has a voice of authority to millions when it comes to conservation and um, British wildlife. But then you have to be a little bit stand out a little bit and you have to say, listen, I need to promote also their side of this sport, their sides of falconry, their sides of shooting that are doing good for wildlife. And I'm in a position I can help the, the layman or the average person understand that. And that's one of my grievances with him, my biggest grievance, because he'll happily post pictures of dead badgers left outside his gate, and so, which is disgusting. It's terrible. It's happening. But at the same time, I, I want to see something positive from you now, back from the hunt to the hunting um, uh, to the hunting fraternity. Let me see something positive. Let's get these people behind you because there are people like me who support you. You shouldn't be getting people putting mm -hmm. dead badgers and stuff outside your house. Right. I support you, but then let's have a little bit of something back now. You know, you're in that position. Let's have something back. You know. I think it's an interesting one because it's, it's, there's no question that, that he's a, a Marmite character and pe people like him or, or they absolutely don't. I mean, it, it's interesting for me because I guess I have tremendous respect for some of the things he's done. There is no question of that. You know, um, for someone who loves wildlife and um, particularly migratory birds, you know, watching Chris Packham go out in Malta and really hammer home what was happening there to songbirds and raptors on migration which is absolutely appalling no one's doing anything about it and he, you know guy's got some balls he went out there did that and I, I have tremendous respect for him for doing that i certainly agree in terms of uh, some of his messaging it is it, I, I think he's very quickly alienated a lot of people that live in and around areas near species that he'd like to conserve and i think there's probably far better ways um, of communicating that but you know he's a naturalist and biologist that who, who has done some outstanding things um but unfortunately he has certainly alienated a lot of people as well and i think that 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 needs to be addressed yeah definitely. i think uh i think for, for me if if someone keeps giving me a platform and i keep representing it one-sidedly i think someone would ha should have to pull me to the side and say listen you need to but you know, people like I guess when you get to that to that level, and you're I guess looking after your status as a celebrity and stuff is probably also your most important thing. Looking after your job on the BBC, looking after that's going to be more important possibly than the message sometimes, because um, that's the way that it feels. I mean, I don't know Chris at, at all, obviously, um, and like I said, I can't say enough good things for what he's done in the way yeah. of good things that he's done. But th those certain things for me are bad enough or do have a negative enough impact that they need raising, especially with him. Because I think someone who's so, someone who, who, who's in this industry should be open-minded enough to say, actually, I'm being a bit of a dick here. I'm, rep I'm representing very one-sidedly. I do need to address, and just every now and again, just address a little something, just address the way falconers are contrib contributing or address the way the shooting industry is helping with this. Anything, you know, just a little something, a little token here and there, just to let people see that actually he's not as one-sided as you would believe because he can, he, he may hate the, the, um, the the badger the ba dead badgers outside of his house and all those sort of things. Oh, I, we all hate that. I yeah, hate of that. course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, your stance is also promoting the anti 
side of things and some of the stuff that these aunties get up to it fox hunt fo f uh, replicated fox drags and stuff some of the stuff that they get up to is horrendous as well and it's promoted by this sort of behavior and i think that everyone needs to step back the people who are abusing the fox ban need bringing into line 100 i've never been fox hunting in my life i, no. I don't have any support for fox hunting i'm not I, i'm not against fox and i don't know enough about it but I didn't support it in any way, shape, or form. But um, I think, yeah, anybody who's abusing one side or the other, there needs to be this middle ground. And someone in that position is the perfect person to, to represent that better, you know? Well, I do. And I, I think it, it's an interesting point you raise in the um, looking at how conservation and saving species is it's so much more than just being passionate about about one element of what you do i think there's an awful lot that can be learned um you know falconry for me is i think there's an awful lot that can contribute from falconry into active conservation and you know i've, I've worked with i've chaired the falconiform taxon advisory group for you for european zoo association since 2011 i did that and I've, I've gone to various meetings with Vulture Conservation Foundation, various different projects where they're looking at releasing birds um, back into the wild, critically endangered or endangered species. Um, some of them have been tremendously successful. If you look at the Eurasian Griffin Vulture um, project, you look at what they've done from uh, Jerez Zoo. They've, they've bred and released uh, vultures. If you want to see vultures in the wild now, Spain is your go-to country. Now, that's partly sad in the obviously asian populations we know have declined so significantly african populations are seeing uh, very similar trends due to diclofenac due to poaching etc a range of different things um but europe has got a huge amount of vultures now you know there's twenty-five thousand pairs flying around between um, the sierra nevada mountains you can see them in spain you go up there i remember sitting in a bar in jerez having a beer just sitting out on a cobbled street sunny day just watching vultures flying from one mountain range to I have videos thermaling with vultures in um in the Pyrenees. I have yeah. videos of me sharing thermals with Superb. 15, 20 vultures. Just and many times when I'm flying in those areas, I'm constantly looking out for vultures yeah. to, to share thermals with. How amazing! What what an experience! And I think that a lot of these, you know, it's it's, it's really positive that we're seeing all of these numbers now across Europe. You hear a lot about the successes, but some of the failures that have, have happened or some of the things that haven't gone so well, you think, actually, do you know what? If a falconer had been doing this, if, if, if a good falconer had actually been doing this release, they'd have got it right. They'd have, they'd have done it better. And the reason I say that is that there's things, there's techniques that a lot of falconers have used, like tame hacking, like ensuring the bird is fit before it goes on migration, that a lot of conservationists, they're looking at what this bird is, is, is hatched from an egg. I'm thinking specifically of Egyptian vultures in this particular example. Hatch them out, they incubate them, put them in an aviary or on the release site, which is great. So they're seeing all of the area they're going to be released in. Then they're released, but they're being released pre-migration and the birds aren't fit enough to make the migration, which is a huge problem. Whereas I think perhaps a falcon might think of that in very different terms. I think there's an awful lot that could be crossed over in terms of getting birds physically fit and physically conditioned to make the kind of journey. Just thinking about the entire process and having a bird at a release site, yeah, that's fantastic. It's great. It's seeing the environment. It's learning the wind on a hilltop aviary. Um, all of those things. But actually, 
what could we learn from Falcon? We know, we, we know full well that um, GPS transmitters have, have been largely trialled by Falconers. We don't looked at harnesses and collaring, but actually some of the training, the free flight, the, the conditioning of birds to come back. I was really, really lucky last year working in Arizona, uh, um, the California, California Condor Project up on the Vermilion Cliffs, and actually getting those birds recalling back in for the carcass into the aviary. So a lot of training techniques there, and I think there's a tremendous amount the crossover between falconers today, good falconers today, um, and trainers, you know, within the zoo community and active in situ conservation projects. I think there's an awful, awful lot of crossover. Um, some of it happens, um, there could be an awful lot more. I think there's a lot of experience on both sides that, that could really benefit. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so, um, yeah, this is where you're at now, pretty much. Um, what was your uh the route mate how did you get a how did you find yourself in the industry what did you work your way up were you a keeper how did you get to where you are and what was the path so i guess for me like many of us i just had an absolutely lifelong obsession with with animals particularly with reptiles birds and invertebrates i've seen fish and amphibians i was always really really interested in largely predatory species um so always always fascinated as a child like many of us turning over rocks and stones and all these kind of things um did the usual school stuff um still maintained my interest i'll tell you I, i'm probably quite I, i'm going to come across as you to your listeners is very sad here but going on the lads holidays to ibiza i was the one getting up at five o'clock in the morning to climb up a mountain looking for snakes <laughs> while everyone else is still in bed from the night before so <laughs> that that gives you an indication of how sad i actually am and always have been um but I used to love that. I thought it was great. Get some hours of solitude, catching um, big Argiope spiders and um, catching some vipers up on mountainside. I spent a lot of my, my childhood holidays doing things like that. Um, I studied biology at university, so um, in London. Um, I did my degree in animal biology specifically, and. Um, during that time, long before that time, I was, I was at university in 94. Before then, I was uh, flying birds. I, I had my own common buzzard and then did, did a route that many people do, had a Harris Hawk, um, which I, I kept for a very, very long time. I, had him, I bought him off a mutual friend, Sean Tafts, actually, I think. Yeah. Blimey, yeah. back in the very early 90s. And that bird, he was going strong. He went over to, he went to a falconry centre a couple of years ago, actually, in, in his retirement years. Um, but during that period, I saw, uh, I think it was about 1998, London Zoo were looking for um, staff to do their um, work on their bird displays. And I had uh, I had an interview with a, a guy who's a very good friend now, Andy Hallsworth, um, who worked with quite a lot, uh, done a lot of traveling with him to various collections as well. So I worked, worked there for a season. During that time, funny enough, I'd, I'd actually had an interview with Nick Fox, at Hunting Falcons International. Um, during the time my career with uh, London Zoo, the, the contract was coming to an end. Um, I actually formally been been offered a position there back in the late nineties with Nick, and um, at the same point in time, um, London Zoo came back to me and said, "Look, we we want to offer you a full time position uh, working in the newly developed uh, invertebrate collection, which was a, a huge interest as well." I took that. I took that position. I stayed at the zoo. Blimey! I, I mean, in total, I was at London Zoo on and off for 21 years. 
Um, so I, st- I stayed there, went back to the animal training team, man- ended up managing the animal training section for the zoo for quite a long time. Um, for about I think seven or eight years, I was uh, I ran the animal activity team. I think you came up with your daughter Wes on yeah, yeah. Uh, at least one occasion. Um, so I looked after that, and then when the zoo manager retired, I was offered the position of of taking over as as the the zoo manager at London. And then actually, do you know what? Before that, there was a step. So before before that, I was actually um, a friend who I lived with at university and who I'd worked with at London. He was running field projects in Ecuador, and he asked me to come in as a um, bird and reptile biologist. So I actually left the zoo during that period in between managing the animal um, training team and then managing the the, the zoo itself. I uh, I went out and, and did a stint in Ecuador. So I was running field projects out there for quite quite a long time, which was absolutely amazing got to see a harpy eagle grab a saki monkey from a tree which was stay with me for forever you know that's one off the bucket list um ornate hawk eagles saw plenty uh you know caimans uh never saw a jaguar saw lots of uh, footprints but tapir macaws toucans taira you know uh, such a range of amazing species and it was really interesting sorry how long were you there i was there for five months Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah so, um, but it was it was a remote place. You know, I've got, I've got an interesting story about it. It was, it was um, we had to we flew into a, to Quito. Then we flew. Um, the Ecuadorian army took us off to a drop off point um, along the Rio Curare, um, and then we got in canoes and we were on canoes for another eight hours or so um, to this point in the middle of the rainforest. We estimated it would take about two months to get to the nearest civilization if we were to walk. So it was an amazing place. Um, I, I remember, and I'll never forget, I'll never forget this. And uh, my colleague at the time, Nick Bill, I hope he remembers it as well as I do. But um, I had to give a, a lecture to all the volunteers that were out there on how to avoid being bitten by anything you don't want to get bitten by and in in ecuador in the amazon you're just anything it's It's pretty much anything the bloody trees bite you given half a chance they've got (laughs) thorns up them there's you've got these things called these bullet ants which uh for any of your listeners they might want to google those but i remember being told you get you get stung by one of those you're going to know about it and i got stung on the ear by one and i went completely deaf for 48 hours it was horrendous thing but I, I remember giving this lecture. There, there were two things I really had to point out, which was one was uh, venomous snakes, specifically Ferdelants, which were pretty much everywhere. I would spend a lot of time removing them from camps. But one of the main things you do is there's lots of logs in the rainforest, as you'd imagine. You step on them, don't step over them, because you never know what's the other side. And the other thing um, that will stick with me forever was telling people how to avoid getting bitten by vampire bats. Now, the vampire bats are quite prevalent in the area. Most people get bitten in one or two places, either on their foot or on their nose. And the reason for that is that they hang off your mosquito nets. So a lot of the, the indigenous people that we stayed with had long sticks and they'd, they'd hit the nets if they were sleeping under them. A lot of them didn't to keep the bats off of them. Um, and I'd given this lecture to everyone about how to avoid it. And that night, about three in the morning, Nick Bill, who was the he was the project leader, woke me up and said, I think you've been bitten. And I remember looking down and I had this um, it was just a white sheet 
and it was just red. And I thought, Christ, because you know, if you know about vampire bats, they've got an anticoagulant in their yeah. saliva. Yeah. They anesthetize you by licking it first. You never feel anything. Um, and I'd actually been bitten on the foot, but the blood had crept up my legs. And the first thing as a, as a bloke that you're going to look at is make sure your <laughs> vitals are, are still there and uh, intact, which thankfully I'm, I'm very pleased to say. There's that, no uh, milk from there, mate. There's no way there. <laughs> not even a vampire bat is going to feast on that. Yeah, it's true enough, true enough. And um, so anyway, long story short, I've been bitten by this vampire bat. And I remember waking up and saying to Nick, what that what what's the crack what what do we do he said well really we ought to get on the satellite phone get you out so you can have your post-exposure rabies vaccines oh man i don't even do that um so i said to him what would you do if it was you and he said oh, if it was me i'll just leave it don't worry about it bandage it up and we'll tell everyone um, what happened how to avoid themselves so that had been the plan of action about six weeks later we were out there and uh, i saw nick kick out in his sleep and I turned, turned my head towards John, and he'd been bitten by a vampire bat. And I said to him, Nick, you've got a vampire bat on your foot, and there was blood coming out of there. And he leapt out of bed and said, quick, get the radio, get the, get the satellite phone. I've got to get out of here and get my exposure. <laughs> I went, you know what you can do with that, don't you? <laughs> so I, I went for a very long walk for about 12 hours with the satellite phone. <laughs> absolutely guarantee that if I had it, he had it too. <laughs> amazing you yeah. never um you've never caught anything out in these places and malarias or anything like this never anything no, i've been, like... been very lucky i've i've been with people who caught who had leishmaniasis which was awful uh, terrible situation i was with um God, i had had one of the guys on the on the the camp actually had bot got bitten by bot fly or robber fly oh. Awful, and he had the man. He had a shaved head, and he had the. You could see the little black spots, and um, you can do one of two things: you put Vaseline on it, and they put out an air tube. The case, it, doesn't it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so I never thought I'd, I'd spend my time pulling uh, maggots out of some guy's head, oh. but, but I had to end up doing that as well, which was quite interesting. Um, but no, I've not really caught, I've not had anything um, really significant been bitten by plenty of things um, as you can probably imagine um it's usually just either resulted in stitches or or, or something or nothing but certainly no no nasties not as yet sounds anyway, amazing though sounds amazing it is a, it, it's an absolutely unique it's a unique place and i remember being told before i went to the amazon that if you've ever been to kew gardens you get a really strong smell of peat and tropical plants and as you get off the plane in Kita, you can smell it you can smell the rainforest it's, it's just yeah. incredible yeah it's it's just you, you just smell peat and um like compost you can smell it from from hundreds of miles away it's it's, it's just an amazing place and i think it, it needs to be cherished and looked after we hear so much about deforestation you can see it flying over on the planes you can you can see la like a line um, literally in the sand where, where trees have come down and then then you hit this dense canopy and it's it's an incredible place and i'd urge anyone who has has the opportunity to go to to definitely take to take the opportunity is it as uncomfortable as uh is it perceived to be on TV and stuff like with the humidity and the moisture? Is it as uncomfortable as uh, as you think? You get used to it. it. It is initially. I think in terms of the temperature, it's not as bad. It, it remains a stable twenty eight degrees. So it's twenty eight degrees morning, evening, night time. You welcome the rain. You welcome a breeze. Um, 
But yeah, you know, it's, it's hot at night time. I think it's it's hard to eat. It's a very difficult terrain. Um, in, we were in the eastern foothills of the Andes, so it's quite an undulating ch terrain. I mean, put it like this way: so I, you know, I I could do with being on a diet at the moment. I was I was down to seventy kilos when I when I was um, in Ecuador. So I lost. You lose a lot of weight. It's a very physical environment. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it is uncomfortable. It's hard work. There's never enough food to um, make you feel full because everything you're doing is burning off an awful lot of energy. But at the same time, you're watching toucans and howler monkeys and you yeah, see yeah. squirrel monkeys. You've got capuchins, spider monkeys. You, you know, it's, for, for a naturalist, you know, I, I really enjoy speaking to Nigel King about uh, his trips to Africa. I, I, you know, I can listen to it uh, all day. Unfortunately, if you're with him, you do have to listen to it all day. All but, day. It's, <laughs> all day. but, yeah, I really I, I keep threatening to go and I'd love to love to go to Africa. Um, I'd, I'd love to experience that. But at the same time, any naturalist, anyone with an interest in wildlife, love to get into South America because it's yeah. it's outstanding. It's it's. Just I mean, I, one of my biggest regrets was not taking the job out with Mark when he offered it to me. Um, and then subsequently, Nigel went out there. But um, yeah, Mark offered me a job out there and I, I got offered a fight at the same time and I stayed and took the fight. And had I have known, obviously, what was going to happen with Mark and yeah. stuff, I would have 100% bit his hand off and gone for three. He's just offered me three months. He's like, mate, come out for three months. I need right. some help because I've got um, it's Black Sparrow season and we're going to be getting lots of stuff coming in. And I've got a new eagle that needs work. Come out. It'd be brilliant to have you. So I was meant to go. Nigel sorted it all out for me. And then I got offered this fight and I took the fight. And then, lo and behold, like... God rest Mark saw what happened with Mark. You know, it just would have been the perfect time. Now it's I do still want to go to South Africa. I was meant to go last year for a paragliding competition. Um yeah. but that would have been the to go there and work so closely with specifically birds of prey, which is if I'm ever to be considered knowledgeable about anything, I guess birds of prey would probably yeah, yeah. um so yeah, it was a it's a regret of mine, definitely, but uh I, I, not me and Nigel and I say we're going to go all the time. Uh, so hopefully, when this is all over, Nigel and I'll get out there. And maybe you as well. Would you go out for a couple Love of it. little safaris? And it'd be absolutely brilliant. But again, the um, I remember a few years ago, I watched a TV show. It was called Lost Land of the Volcano, um, and it was like Steve Backshaw, uh, Gordon Buchanan, and who's the old white bearded guy? Who's the insect guy? Oh, he's got glasses. He's on all of those programs like Lost Land of the Volcano, etc. He's a like a biologist. I can't think of his name. Anyway, he like him as well. Great program. They did another one called Lost Land of the Tiger as well, where they where they went to track down a tiger that lived on top of a Tibetan mountain, which wow. they didn't think was there. But, and I watch these programs. I'm like Steve Backshaw. That that's me. That's what I should be doing. Like, he's a, a former judo champion. Yeah. His job is exactly there's. I don't think there's anything that I do right now that I wouldn't give up to go and film a series or two of like Lost Land of the Volcano somewhere. You know, you'd be good at it. You'd be good at it. It'd be. I. I it would be amazing. It would be absolutely the idea thing for me. Definitely. <laughs> I would love it. So yeah, I would getting over to the um to the rainforest. I would absolutely love just just because. I, like they, on their first day, I think their first twenty-four hours, they discovered something like eight or twelve species yeah. that had never been. I'm like, 
I would just be like a, a six-year-old kid walking into the pick and mix at the cinema, just like literally, just like <gasps> I just know I would. So yeah, I think uh, your your advice for people to go, I think I need to I need to stop promoting for other people to go, and I need to actually get off my ass and go. <laughs> Oh, uh, you'd certainly you'd, you'd have an absolute whale of a time out there, and I think any, any naturalist, anyone with an interest in wildlife, you know, there's there's something for everyone, particularly the bird, birds of prey. I think I think absolutely breathtaking. You've frozen. You still with me? Yeah, mate. Don't don't hang up. We will come back. I'm sure. Hey, we're back, are we? <laughs> it happened the other day as well. Um. Yeah, so we're all good. Connections all good now. Yeah, all good. Perfect, brilliant, mate. Okay, so yeah, you are. Uh, so that was your route into the to being at London Zoo. What's your advice for people who want to get into uh, into zoology or working in within a zoo? Mate, I think it's probably, I would imagine, a high turnover of staff in that sort of job. Well, do you know what? I, I, it's not. It's it's a very very low turnover. I think that is. That's what presents a lot of the challenges for, for individuals. You know, I, I was at I was at London Zoo for 21 years and there are still people there that looked at me as a newcomer. You know, it's yeah, you know, it's uh, I've got there's, there's a guy there, um, Matt Hennessy. You, you'd have a great deal of time for him. He was an old, old bare knuckle boxer, tough, tough old boy. But, you know, he's coming up for 40 years or uh, 45 years at, at the zoo, you know, and um, it's not unique. It's, it's got a very, slow, very low turnover because people who work with animals is limited, um, relatively limited fields or opportunities to get into it. So, no, I mean, I've got staff uh, here at Wildwood that, you know, been here since its inception really and it's uh yeah it, it's quite a low turnover my advice to anyone is learn about it but actually come and talk to people doing the job as well come and get some spend some time yeah, volunteering is without a doubt probably the greatest way to get in involved in some of these jobs because you're a known quantity you've shown a lot of the qualities that are required for for professional animal work certainly in terms of commitment dedication not getting much money to work very hard you know all of those things and actually you often hear um one of the questions and i get asked it an awful lot is um can you look at my cv can you can you see am i doing the right thing well actually do you know why i have to say that hard work and passion and dedication get you everywhere in in animal work and you can you can go to university i had keepers that done their phds doctors and probably far far more qualified than than i was but equally the majority have come into volunteer groups um and actually whether you've got your degree whether you've got your master's or phd your experience and your commitment will get you a very, very long way. And I'd say the majority, and by majority, certainly over 60% of the keepers I've recruited had come in from a volunteer background. Yeah. I mean, when you get to um, how many of your, how many species like within the zoo, keeper-wise, uh, will be very much um, dependent upon those certain keepers, you know? So you get certain animals that work with, I guess, for the display side of things. Yeah specifically that's very important certain birds that will only work with certain people or yeah. certain uh marsupials that will only work with certain people etc that's probably a, a big deal is it 
Yeah, it certainly can be. And I think that it's, it's why now you see more often uh, than ever that within zoological um, animal collections, you, you zone the keepers out, usually taxonomically. So we, you'd, you'd have a group of primate, you'd have a team specifically of primate keepers. You might have a team of carnivore keepers, of bird keepers, of animal trainers, of aquarists. Some of the skill sets, of course, are not that transferable either. So um, I, you couldn't just pull a keeper from somewhere to go and work in the reptile house or the aquarium because the needs of those animals, the needs of all animals are very specific, but certainly where you're looking at the environmental parameters that an animal has to sustain its well-being and its health, like a, within a vivarium, you've got very certain UV requirements, heat requirements. You can't just drag anyone over to come and look at that. Um, so how you normally do it and how we do it here is we've got a, we've got a team of carnival keepers or dangerous animal keepers that will look after bison wolves bears um mm. lynx etc and then we've got a bird keep our bird team um that will also do do the demonstrations we've got reptile keepers as well so um you, you by doing it that way uh, you limit those kind of concerns they're usually focused around mammals i have to say where um some species might not feed or might not recall as readily if you've got a different and keep it trying to call them over and of course you've got all the health and safety issues um, as well so working with big cats or bears particularly you know you have a very specific dedicated team of staff that work consistently uh, with those animals yeah i think one of the, uh, one of the most mind-blowing um exhibits that i've seen do was the uh wild dogs the, yeah sure they are they were incredible they they seem so unique to everything else that's in the zoo they seem to behave a bit differently yeah. they seem so yes yeah, so so strange that that something so wild so african so wild is in that environment and yet they remain but yeah. they, uh, you see the tigers and the lions at the zoo and they seem almost tamed you know people fall and they think that they're tamed because they just lays about but the african wild dogs still seem really wild to me when I yeah see and I think that's I think that's a, a, a fair observation, really, Wes, because that they are they they act in a in a wild way. Their, their movement is fluid as well. They move as one, as I'm sure you've seen. Now, Whipsnake's got a huge enclosure for for their hunting dogs, but it's it's incredible. You know, even to the point if a pigeon lands in that enclosure. Yeah, there's a good chance they're going to catch it. They will hunt together. They they use all the tricks of the trade. They'll use distraction. So you have two animals in one area and then others will gang up and, and come in. So, it, it, I mean, hunting dogs naturally just run down their quarry. That's what they do. They're, they're built for stamina and those things, they can really run. You know, you, you so you have to think of ways to expend their energy using zip wires with carcasses on it, whole carcass feeding that they have to pull off of something. And they're, they're an amazing animal. Absolutely incredible. But in rich, so I guess this is uh, another thing. I guess you... um. Do you find yourself having to justify animal captivity a lot um, or do you find, I mean, I guess it does get like zoos and animal captivity does get frowned upon. And I guess yeah. and people underestimate the amount of animal enrichment that goes into a role of a keeper or even I'm assuming here and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming you have um, meetings of enrichment for certain species yeah. and how you can replicate um like similar wildlife enrichment so do you find that that you have to justify that a lot within not within the industry but to people yeah i think i think that's a fair comment i think 
perhaps when I was working in more traditional zoos, yes. Yeah. I think here, certainly less so. So where we are now, um, I'd love you to come and see it. It's a, it's a woodland. It's a native English woodland with native species. So you've always got the temperature parameters exactly spot on or species that have existed in the UK um, in a forested environment in natural enclosures. So I think we, we tend not to get those comments here when I've worked traditionally in perhaps what we consider more traditional zoos. They're, they're, they're not, it, it's not common, but there's certainly comments that come up. And I, I think they're justified as well. I, I have to say that I think the word zoo is a very, very broad term and it covers an entire range of extremely diverse facilities that hold animals. And if someone says to you, do you like a zoo? It's like saying, do you like a restaurant? You know, well, yes, some of them I do and some of them I really don't. And um, it, it really comes down to that. It's it for me. It comes down to um, demonstrating that the animals are in uh, displaying natural behaviours, demonstrating that they're, they're being provided with enrichment. And to answer that point, yeah, we've actually got a behavioural um, animal behaviour committee that deal with animal training, conditioning for re recall work, for veterinary procedures to try and eliminate anything ever being darted. We can do hand injection, um, and we've got an enrichment forum here as well. Um, so very similar to, to the setup that we had at London, um, where you're looking all the time at how do we keep these animals interested how do we enrich their lives how do we ensure that their behavior is as natural as it can be and it's not only looking at those things it's, it's having an external influence to look at them as well so rather than um, focusing with our own biases of what we might want to see we have students externally doing their MSc projects either through Darwell, DICE or, or various universities or academic institutes they will study those animals um, completely free of bias and produce their publications on that so that we can learn. You know, it's always it's a, it's a learning curve. But I think, you know, some of those comments from the public about animals in captivity are absolutely justified. If you see, um, if you go to a collection, you see an animal just bouncing off the walls or sitting in a, a, a sparse, barren bear pit with no enrichment or no remnants of, of of the wild within it it's it's extremely sad and you see the best and the worst and i think that the, the term zoo encompasses everything from your really poor archaic victorian bear pits um to some places in the world actively engaging with conservation programs breeding for release engaging in education and displaying the kind of enrichment and behavioral repertoires for their animals in their collections that you would hope to see so that term zoo is really really very broad and um i can certainly understand why there was opposition to it all the time uh, we don't reach reach the uh, the best in standards of welfare and ethics for a collection of animals yeah, because whenever I go traveling, wherever I go in the world, my first poor call is a zoo. I remember when I, when I went to Amsterdam, and when we got off the, the train at Amsterdam, and I was like, right, I was like, right, where's the zoo? And I was looking at it, because I know Amsterdam reportedly got a great zoo, and um, as soon as I could, I looked up where the zoo was and planned to go there the next day. But you're in Amsterdam, like, people are getting stoned and indulging in other activities <laughs> and i'm looking where the zoo is and it's like but like i've been to some zoos and i've been there like oh this place makes me depressed but i'm into other zoos and i mean i'm i, I guess i'm 
uh, I, I look at things a bit different to a lot of other people because I've been fortunate enough to be friends with yourself and see the other side. I know about all the good, the good things that come from from zoos. Um, and but yeah, I look at for someone like a zoo. I want to go to the zoo. I want to see what the, the local zoo is like, and I'm just fascinated. Of course, you get the TV programs now, the zoo, and all these sort of things. Obviously, the Long Leap program has been going for for 20 years or something now. So obviously. People are interested in these these things, and people must respect the good that, that these in that these um, places are ha are having. But then you get something like blackfish that comes out, and of course has a massive impact. Um, did you notice any knock-on stuff from that when? Because you were, I think, when it came out, you were at London Zoo, I believe. Then I was. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So did you? I'm guessing. Asking really, do you? Do you get constant criticism from these sort of forums of that sort of thing? Or did you watch that documentary? And is it something that you watch that documentary and you want to criticise the documentary? Or you completely understood and it's a thought process that you've had for years or within the industry that that has happened? Because people will see the Blackfish documentary and they'll, they'll assume, and I get, I'm really being really broad here, I know. They'll assume, people will see it, that that's terrible. Everyone who works at a zoo supports this sort of stuff, and all zoos support this sort of thing. And I guess you don't. That's not what people support. They don't support enclosing big, massive mammals into tiny little swimming pools and stuff. So I guess it is. What I'm saying is basically what what was your feedback, or what was the feedback from within the industry from something like Blackfish? I think with it, certainly within the industry, it, it's such an emotive topic, and it's again, Wes, it's it's like so many different subjects i think people have their own individual opinions as to what is right or what is wrong and i found work certainly working in zoos uh, for as long as i have and doing uh, european inspections as well you get to meet a lot of people and you, you, you meet people that very much like yourself and like nigel and like a lot of my friends love animals they love wildlife they're fascinated by animals Equally, you find within zoos, there's a lot of people that love zoos. Not so much about the animals, but they they love everything that comes with that. The history of animals in captivity, um, heart, dating back to the Victorian periods. And so you've got a lot of very uh, diverse opinions. Um, so I can't speak on behalf of an industry. I speak on behalf of myself. Um, I, I don't like seeing walkers in captivity. I think um, I don't really, I, I understand why it's considered entertaining. But this is a, a huge migratory species that covers thousands of miles across the ocean within uh, diverse temperature ranges um, uh, in a very specific social structure within a family group that we fail to provide in captivity so so to my point I, I do struggle with that actually and I, I think it's right that even within um, the zoo environment you're always challenging and questioning things and you know people that work with me know my thoughts on a range of different animals in captivity and it's not to say that they they shouldn't be kept in captivity it is to say that if you're going to keep them in captivity like anything understand the biology of the species and replicate it if you know if you know that you've got a, a species that you know hunting dogs are quite a good example that are extremely mobile we know that they have a tremendous amount of stamina that's how they obtain their food they run down their prey items and then they feed on it as a pack to a whole carcass then replicate that 
understand it and then replicate it as closely as you possibly can to ensure that that species is expending its energy, it's behaving in a natural way, and you can interpret that. And actually, carcass feed it, feed a whole deer carcass to it. Yeah, this is, this is a real bugbear of mine, is that a lot of zoological collections think that the public won't um, necessarily want to see that. Well, actually, you're coming to see a wild animal. Let's show it behaving in a wild way and, and do exactly that. And, you know, I, I always found it staggering that, that people would be opposed to feeding a whole carcass uh, to a pack of wolves. Well, of course, uh, that's what they eat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, one, of my, one of my biggest bugs to bear at the moment is um, Facebook censoring images of wildlife killing like. You'll see a, a, a lion eating an antelope, they're censoring it. A peregrine falcon eating a, a gull, they're censoring it. I'm like, you're, this is insanity. We're censoring nature in wildlife. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's incredible. No, I can't see any benefit. There's zero benefit to this at all. This promotion that this is natural and this is what happens is the way that we will save these species alienating that and making it a um making it something that people don't want to see it's the quickest way to get rid of it surely i mean i'm surely i'm not stupid for thinking that way no i don't i don't think you are i, I think you're absolutely spot on it's it's an it's an entirely educational tool we want to demonstrate to and my, my kids come out you know aiden's four years old we will help me prep up pigeons and um, get food ready for, for birdie understands fully what animals eat and where food comes from and it's critically important that he does and um, and respects that as well but censoring and hiding these things is it, I, I can't understand it I mean I, I can't comment too much because I've actually been um, Facebook have censored me at the moment unfortunately so I'm, I'm on a ban from Facebook so I can't actually see I know what you were censored for so <laughs> We'll patch over that one. But to be fair, the image you were censured for sharing is all over social media. That's not. That's what the whole thing started for that purpose. I don't. I just don't. I mean, obviously, I go to the other extreme, and I don't believe there should be any censorship. I believe that the only way that people should be censored is through society and morality, because I think. Being embarrassed by the fact your peers think what you are doing is is shit is a much more has much more of an impact than the government or a, a third party like Facebook saying you shouldn't do this. All you get then is rebellious, as opposed to me. The, listen, the reason I don't post videos of people being raped is because I don't agree with people being raped. I think it's vile, and I don't want to see them. I don't want to share them. I don't do it because I'm worried that Facebook will take my profile down. I do it because morally it doesn't stand well with me and I don't want any part of it. I don't watch, I don't go on live leak because I don't like videos of people getting their heads cut off. And no, it's no. not my thing. Like other people want to watch it. That's fair enough. I don't want to ban live leak. I just don't want to have a part in it. And I think the moment that we take the moral standing and the morality out of it, we're starting then to get to a point where people aren't making a judgment on on their morals and their ethics and they're not building those moral and ethics we're making a judgment on oh what what's what going to happen to me if i do this or what's so and so going to think of me and i i think it's wrong we've we got it all wrong yeah I, I can't disagree especially around wildlife i just don't i don't see 
the point in in censoring wild activities like i mean there was that famous picture of the i believe it was a peregrine that had at the neck of a seagull and the seagull was still alive did you ever see the picture yeah i've seen it yeah, yeah so the gull gets up and walks around with his neck fully exposed like disheathed and stuff so um and it was blurred and censored everywhere and i was like you what you don't understand about this a okay you could say it's cruel in as much as it nature is cruel yeah, yeah, if you sure. want to if you want to uh anthropomorphize it you could say that imagine how it feels and all these things however what you could also say is wow this is an incredible opportunity that a photographer was there to witness something like this happen such an amazing event that may never get pictured anywhere ever again Wow, what an incredible opportunity yeah, yeah. for us to have seen this in nature. I mean, it must it must absolutely kill Facebook um, to to not be able to cover everyone's eyes up should they see a peregrine or a sparrowhawk, in fact, killing a pigeon in front of somebody. It's not it's life, you know. It's it's absolutely it's life, you know. You it's can't the most incredible things yeah. part of life because it's so uncontrollable. Mm. There's so many great elements in life as in sporting achievements musical achievements singers theater art incredible like stuff that will impact you and has such a great cultural impact and then there's other things that happen in life shooting stars oh, a taking a magpie in the middle of a roundabout there's all these things that happen <laughs> and as nigel just... drives off with his window open <laughs> 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 no, I said I said the sparrow caught the magpie. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and, and all these things happen, and these things happen thousands of times a day, and nobody witnesses them. So when you witness them, to not see the magnificence in it and celebrate that, we're robbing ourselves, surely. Totally, totally, and not only robbing ourselves, it's being robbed from us as well in some respects. You know, this kind of thing that you want your kids to see. It's it, it's life, and you know, wildlife documentary. Even I, I find now, even a lot of wildlife documentaries censor out a lot of the the actual killing and and understanding. It, you lose the understanding of how a lion kills a zebra. You see it chasing, you see it hunting. You never get you, you don't see an asphyxiation or anything like that a lot of the time it's censored out and it's it then leads to questions how does a lion kill a zebra well it gives you the opportunity to explain it but what is the point of censoring out and only telling part of a story you know it's part of our life it's yeah, you know, I watched, um, watched a documentary the other day and uh, there was a peregrine caught a pigeon and it was feeding its young it was on this aerial and it catches the pigeon got it in its foot and then the, the narrator says he even has time to start plucking the pigeon in the air. Of course, it wasn't plucking the pigeon. I think you can probably guess what it was doing. <laughs> it was dispatching the pigeon. And I thought, what a great way to be able to explain the process of what it's doing. The fact that it's been given this amazing terminable tooth that it uses, uh, quite unique. Quite and you've nice. just robbed your audience of understanding that. Because you wanted to water down the fact that it's broken a pigeon's neck, which yeah, is completely, completely natural. I think, uh, yeah, it 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 really grates on me that sort of thing, and it makes me wonder how much um, wildlife documentary we're going to lose once Sir David Attenborough's gone, because oh, I think the amount of people who only watch wildlife documentaries, if they're narrated by 
David oh, yeah. Attenborough, it makes me worry when it happens, what what happens to, to wildlife documentaries? Yeah, I mean, absolutely it does. I mean, I've been talking about um, the, the, Sir David's replacement over uh, over the last decade or so now. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's what, 93 now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, he's, uh, you know, from his own own well-being perspective, that that's that's an awful lot of work to be doing for him at his uh, at that age. I think that's how old he is. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but even he's so, ninety four, ninety four, ninety four. He's no younger than that. He's even ninety three or ninety four. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible age. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's he's been the voice of wildlife since we were kids. You know, and. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't even like to think about it, you know. And even, the thing is, narration. Narration's quite a job, you know. Just just sitting down and narrating a, a documentary like that is a lot of work. So it is. I, I do worry that after, because the amount of people who I, who I still hear now say, oh, I can't watch Wildlife if it's not David Attenborough. And then he releases something like Life or like yeah, yeah. Seven Wonders Project. And then... Bam! It smashes the previous one, and then the new Blue Planet comes out, and bam! It smashes yeah, yeah. The one, and you're like, "What comes after? Where? Like, because people just don't watch these things if they're not narrated by David Attenborough." No, and it's it's absolutely true. I mean, I've been I've been very very lucky. I've worked with him three times now, and his you know all, all credit. He, he provides all the credit to this amazing team of photographers video videographers the filming is absolutely astounding you see the efforts they go into for it but it's him it's his voice over overlaying on this amazing footage that just keeps everyone uh, actually encapsulated is is an astounding man and you know what well it's the voice of a generation really several yeah, generations yeah, I, um i shared a i was at a dinner with one of the producers of um of I think it was. What's the one? Not oh, the one. The one with the snakes when they were run, like chasing down the lizards. What? what oh was, yeah, you're talking about when they when they're in Madagascar looking yeah, at the races, uh, hunting the marine iguanas. Uh, sorry, that was in. Um, that was in uh, the Galapagos, wasn't it? it? But what was the name of the documentary? Life. That was life, yeah. So I was talking to one of the producers, and she was saying that she, uh, what they've done is they have a large catalogue of audio recorded <laughs> just for afterwards because they do not have a plan for afterwards. So they have a big catalogue of stuff recorded so they can produce for years and years and years posthumously of uh, David Attenborough, which I thought was, that just goes to show the voice of a generation, the influence one man's had yeah, yeah. on us, you know? Well, it's, it's, I think it's incredible. If you've, if you've read his book, I, I know you're a big reader, if you read Life on Air, um, if you haven't read it, you should. I it's, haven't. Well, you should. It's um, it's all, all about David Attenborough, how he got into it, how, how he began doing this. I'm going on Amazon while you speak. You have to keep him entertained because I'm going on Amazon to buy the book right now. I like it. Um, well, I think you're probably, what you're going to do, I think, picking up from what they've done with David Attenborough's voice, are you going to do the same for your podcasts? Are you going to record thousands and thousands of games? <laughs> I can I'll just be happy if people listen to this one. <laughs> <laughs> they won't if they know it's weird. Um, 
But yeah, it's, it's an amazing book, and you'll particularly enjoy it because it just tells about you know he was he was um, a, a BBC Two, wasn't he, for a long time? He was producer of BBC Two, um, and then just getting in into it. And they said, I remember there's a, a, a section on there where he's told he'll never. Um, make television he's got a face for radio which is where that famous <laughs> phrase kind of comes from and then of course someone um someone didn't turn in for work to do some narration he took over and then the rest is history it's it's well, you don't need to buy it now where's i've told you the plot there we go that's it that's that then. you've just saved boom. me 12 quid boom <laughs> <laughs> no mate i've literally just pressed buy it now you'll love it this so i mean obviously you know i read a lot so I yeah. love it anyway, um, and I love my genre is memoirs. That's my I read everything. I read yeah. everything. But I love a memoir, and I finished a book last night, so I'll start another one. Just by the time this comes, I should be in a position to uh to start this one. I'm over the moon. So um, so what about now that we've got uh the old COVID and stuff, mate? How's life for you at the moment? What are you doing? Um, are you still at as much at work, or have you got a bit more free time, or? So I, I, I can't say free time. Um, I'm physically in the office just to support the teams here three or four days a week. Um, what I am doing is taking the time to do a lot of planning because we've got this, um, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to work towards this bison reserve. So I'm really just looking at um, planning that with our ranger team here, looking at fence lines, bison corrals, um, starting to collate the list of tree species that currently exist within the Bleen woodland um, where we're, we're putting it. So doing a lot of research at the moment, I have to say, um, making sure that the teams here are absolutely operational. Obviously coming into our breeding season, so we've got a lot of, uh, lot of different species. We've got two crane eggs at the moment. Um, uh ravens have built big nests you and i'll chat about ravens again um, yeah um wildcats i'm certainly looking to to breed those and then of course we've got the big project in devon with the uh the bear cubs uh coming so for me at the moment it's an awful lot of planning designing um i've been funny enough actually the day that COVID was really announced and i was starting to do the lockdown i was actually working at artist zoo in amsterdam i've been there for a week and uh scurrying back to the airport uh, we've been planning the uh, collection planning process for hours in european zoological collections to optimize yeah. conservation which was fantastic but then it was a mad scramble back to the euro stars everything started shutting down so it's a bit, bit, bit of a mad one um but yeah no busy um work certainly is is taking a slightly different direction in the um obviously a little bit more office based and it's hard having uh, meetings beyond zoom or skype uh, because of all the social distancing so a lot of the people that i'd normally be engaged with on a regular basis to start planning this work uh, you, you have to work around their availability i think the difficult thing for so many people is the schools being shut that that's been uh, that's been a challenge because um you know, you're, you're relying on you're relying on a, a huge network of people to come in and support all of this work. But as soon as they said they're closing the schools, um, I'm having Zoom meetings with kids running behind me, kids jumping on your ladders. Yeah, people understand. It's, it kind of breaks it up a bit, but that's been one of the big challenges I think for a lot of us is is um, not is having having to do the childcare bit. Yeah, my brother I was saying today. I uh, saw my brother today, and he was saying that. Uh, two days ago, he went over to B&M Bargains and uh, he decided to take his two and a half year old because 
rather than leave him at home with the missus and the youngest. So he took him over, got to B&M, and the woman said, you can't bring him in, it's one person. He's like, what? He's like, you can't bring him in, it's one person. He's like, well, what if I'm a single dad? Or what if my wife's a key worker? Well, she's an NHS nurse. She's like, um, well, I guess I'll let you in this once. He was like, how ridiculous. How ridiculous is, like, I can't, the bloke behind, apparently the, uh, the bloke behind him, spoke up for him straight away and then my brother obviously my brother's your voice his own opinion but how ridiculous is that like we're in a situation where it's a guy with a kid you haven't had a family of five turn up it's, you know it's crazy people have got i think this is one of the things you, you you've seen some amazing acts of kindness and support within communities and yet there is still an astounding lack of common sense um, from so many people. You just can't teach it, can you? You just can't yeah. teach that common sense, mate. You, you just can't. can't. We were watching a woman the other day, and there was actually a, a meme up on Facebook about it, where wearing these gloves at the supermarket and pulled it off with her teeth. And you think, are you insane? Oh, <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, but stop recording your misses, mate. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> That's what got you taken off Facebook, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it must have been, yeah. Something like um, that. So these projects, mate, the ones, um, the 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 one in Devon, is yeah. that facility and uh, facility is open to the public, and then that's yeah. just a project that's on the side. What, what yeah. facility is that down there, mate? That's going to be, so we've got the Wildwood Trust uh, Escot, which is on the Escot Estate. Um, absolutely fantastic park. Again, specialising, very similar to us. It's got big red squirrel walkthrough enclosure. They, they again, do a lot of red squirrel breeding. Um, lynx, European wolves, wildcats, of course, will be involved in, in, in a lot of the work there. But that's where we're looking at putting these bear cubs as well. So building this big um, internal woodland facility with, with the ponds and um, creating a bit more of a woodland for them as well. So, yeah, that will be open to the public. Um, so the, but yeah. the Wildwood project down there is already open to the public. Yeah, that's open. Uh, I'm gonna. That's gonna be one of my first visits. I think after this is over, uh, with being so close to me, I'm gonna have a pop down there and have a look at that and uh, have a look yeah. at that facility. And then it's just nice to know now that this is coming with the bears and have a look at everything yeah, yeah. being developed down there. So I'm gonna because I've ne I've never been. Um, quite embarrassingly, I've never been down there. So I am going to. As yeah. soon as it's over, that's going to be one of my trips is to get down to the Wildwood Project down Brilliant. there. And then, of course, I'll, I'll be up to see you as well. We're, we're long overdue a, a visit. so Yeah, I mean, make it happen. Definitely. Come up and see you and then get a curry. We'll maybe even get the fat bloke up as well and get a curry with him. Perfect. Look forward to it. But, um, mate, listen, thank you very much for joining me. I We would talk all day. I've got <laughs> lots of things that I want to speak, other, like, species and stuff. Yeah. And, like, you know, like, British species and what should we go and what, ver what um, insects and what lizards do you think that kids should be knowing about in the UK? And I just... Mate, my tiger mind. beetles, mate. They need to know about tiger beetles. They've all emerged in the forest behind us. All these emerald ti tiger beetles. Absolutely fantastic. Kids need to know about them. Tiger beetles. And also, i tell you what I saw yesterday, which people should have a look at. Maybe don't touch it. Is a woodlag wood spider. Oh, yeah, yeah. How beautiful nice. is a woodlag spider. Yeah, soda. Yeah. yeah How nice. lovely is that, mate? So have a look. People should Google the woodlouse spider yeah. and the tiger beetle, and they should have a look at them. That's their homework from the back of this. Good, good. Um, but other than that, mate, I'm gonna let you go. You're you're a busy guy. Um, thank, honestly, mate, thank you for joining me. It's been pleasure. a pleasure, and we will do another one soon enough with lots of other stuff to talk about. Um, All right.
Until then, mate, is there anywhere, anything that you want to mention? Any shout-outs you want to give or any projects you think people should look up? Anything at all you want to say before we go? All I'd like everyone to do is um, stay safe and enjoy nature, enjoy wildlife and uh, have a look out your windows and see what you can see, you know. Get out in your gardens and do things that you can do, but uh, let's see what you, let's hear what you're seeing out there. Nice one, mate. Thank you very much again, mate. I'll catch Pleasure. you.